0: Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, NBC's Kyle Martino tells the story of how he went from an early playing retirement to failed Wall Street finance guy to one of the most respected soccer analysts around. He and I also exchange stories of how we both got frozen out for doing our jobs by former U.S. coach Jurgen Klinsmann.
1: A few days later, we got word at NBC that there was a press conference coming up for U.S. soccer and I was banned from it. I wasn't allowed to show up at the press conference and there was no clear indication about when I was going to be allowed back to cover U.S. soccer and was going to be given access to the coaching staff.
0: All that and my thoughts on soccer coming up. Take one. Here we go with my three thoughts on soccer. First up, the New York Red Bulls finally announced they had, quote, mutually agreed to part ways, end quote, with sporting director Ollie Curtis. All Curtis had done in two years on the job was help lead his team to the 2015 Supporters Shield and two straight first place finishes in the Eastern Conference. He also fell on grenades from the moment he took over by agreeing with ownership to fire coach Mike Pecky, a fan favorite, and endure a hostile town hall with the team's own fans over that. Curtis will be fine and in demand by other MLS teams, but the profound weirdness of Red Bull New York and its Austrian parent has been around for years, and this is only the latest chapter. Ali Curtis deserved better than this, deserved better than a press release in which not a single Red Bull leader was quoted by name, deserved better than the still-hanging cloud of questions over why he would be pushed out after two successful years on the job. Red Bull's fans deserve better, too.
1: Take two.
0: Next up, Barcelona's 4-0 Champions League loss to PSG is one of the most stunning scorelines we've seen in years. PSG manager Unai Emery had a dynamite game plan, and his team performed it to perfection, shutting down Barca's midfield and causing everyone to wonder if Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez were even playing in this game. But let's be clear on a few things. First, one game does not signify the end of an era for Barcelona. 2. I'm not ready to write off Barca yet in this series, even though no team has ever turned around a 4-0 first leg deficit in Champions League, and I can't wait for the return leg when Barcelona comes out all guns blazing. 3. Luis Enrique is almost certainly out at the end of the season if Barcelona does go out in Champions League here and fails to win La Liga. Lucio is a smart guy. He knows the deal when you coach Barcelona. And if it turns out that he's replaced by, say, Jorge Sampaoli, that seems like a smart move to me. Take three. Finally, this week's interview with Kyle Martino is longer than most, but I think you'll find that it's worth the time. I've known Kyle for more than a decade. He was one of my favorite interviews during his playing career, and he is remarkably honest in the interview you're about to hear. Martino talks about being the lone American accent on NBC Premier League broadcasts, the differences between working for NBC, Fox Sports, and ESPN covering soccer, how he prepares for each week's Premier League studio show, his own depression after having to retire from playing at age 27 due to injuries, why he doesn't stick to sports, his part ownership in the Spanish club Mallorca, and how he wouldn't mind emulating the media career of Michael Strahan. Here's my interview with Kyle Martino. Our guest today is someone you see regularly as a studio analyst for NBC's terrific coverage of the English Premier League. Kyle Martino is here with us and has invited us into his house here in Connecticut. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for coming out. You big city boys coming all the way out to the country. It's pretty cool here. Um... Congratulations. You moved to the East Coast. It's funny that I think of you as a West Coast guy because that's how I've known you. But we're literally in your hometown or next to your hometown. Next to my hometown. In Connecticut.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I grew up uh, two miles, uh, two and a half miles from here, but we couldn't live there because uh, Westport's a small town and my wife loves Westport but doesn't love bumping into the person I went to elementary school with and the girl that I went to prom with every single time we go get coffee. So this is where we are, and we're loving it.
0: Uh, I was going to say, you and your wife, Eva, have two gorgeous kids. You've moved to Connecticut recently after several years in L.A. What led to that decision? I know NBC is based here.
1: Yeah, I mean, the kids, really, because, um, you know, Eva and I were living in L.A., and she was acting, and she's not acting anymore, but we love the L.A. lifestyle. Very – you know, health conscious, you're outdoors all the time. It's progressive. We we found our, our nook and, and sort of were able to negotiate the, the, the silly aspect of living in LA and just find a really wonderful rhythm of life. But I was traveling from LA to do the Premier League out of Stanford, Connecticut. So I was, I was on a plane every weekend, every other weekend. Um, which you know is great when it 's just you and and your wife, and it gives you guys opportunities to kind of get to yourself and get back to work and compartmentalize things and then when you 're together you know you're you're able to tell a story that <laughs> that the other doesn 't know already and reconnect once you get home and be ready for for that but once kids come into the equation it's just being away from them's too hard and um you know i did I did close to two hundred thousand miles a year flying around and um you know, it's really incredible to to be given that opportunity to do that, to fly all over and be able to go to England and cover games and have this incredible job. But one time I was in the backyard with Marlo and we're um we're on our backyard, which is about the size of of this office, which is not very big. We're sitting two two feet from each other. We have an Astro Astro Grass backyard, very LA, and we're playing <laughs> soccer and a plane flies over and Marlo looks up and she goes, Dada oh, and I was like, man. Oh man, that's that was the day I called the realtor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm really enjoying uh, watching you on NBC. Oh, thanks, With man. The, the Premier League coverage. You've been doing it for a little while now. Um, you are the only American accent on NBC. <laughs> it's because I can't do a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see you do that at some point. On NBC's Premier League coverage, obviously everyone else on those broadcasts is fantastic, but do you ever feel like you're carrying the flag for the U.S. sometimes? On that show
1: um, You know, I definitely did at the beginning um, You know, I, I think I noticed that That I was the only American voice Maybe more than the audience did I, 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 I give the audience a lot of credit now It used to be that The the way you said something Mattered more than what you actually said And and there was a time where credibility Was linked to nationality and, and accent and, and our audience just doesn't really care anymore And I think I carried a little bit of a insecurity and and a pressure that I put on myself to make sure I was, you know, I was good enough to justify an American being on set or good enough to overcome the handicap of the 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 criticism I faced for not having played in the Premier League. You know, even though I've, I've played against some of these players at the international level, you know, people just wouldn't give you the chance if you, if you really didn't seem authentic, but th- what I realized after the first um, you know, year of covering the game with the Premier League was that was more my insecurity than the audience being predisposed to not liking me. I mean, is there a group that every single day on Twitter is going to criticize me regardless of what I say because I'm <laughs> American? Absolutely, and and I love them, and please don't stop doing that because it, it's it's a joy to banter <laughs> with with that subgroup. But the the large group, and this kind of is what. Ties into the Bob Bradley uh, mm-hmm. situation in, in in England. The the larger group is is willing to see if you're good enough. You know, are you a good enough, coach? Are you a good enough, player? Are you a good enough pundit? And then I just got to do my work. I got to sit here. I got to watch the games. I got to read the articles. I've got to have an interesting view of the game. And um, you know, being a player is just your playing professionally is just your sort of your license to to get into this car and then you got to be able to drive it. And, um, you know, fortunately I've got an amazing team of the Robbie's and Rebecca, but, but more than that, all the people behind the scenes, as you know, you you, do in TV at Fox, so many people go into helping you be good at your job. And I'm just at an incredible place now where, um, I, I I do feel like I'm carrying the flag, but, um, I, I don't feel, I don't feel the pressure of that. And it's not something that, um, that anyone at NBC treats me differently or, or feels I'm,
0: I'm, I'm different on set because of that. I would think there might be a bit of a balance perhaps where you can maybe, as you were saying, use that as a positive motivation. I've got to be ready. I've got to be prepared. I've got to do my thing. You would be if you had a British accent yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. But that, that insecurity you don't want. And I do think, in my opinion, sometimes we do have an insecurity among American soccer people about our Americanness and what other countries think of us.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you know what? It's a really good point because um, like anything, the, the fear of failure drove me to be the kid in the basement kicking the ball against a square I duct taped up so that I could... Be better than my brothers. You know, it started at home, and then it was best on my, you know, local Westport team. Then it was best on my Connecticut team. There was always a fear of, what happens if I'm not good enough, or what happens if I'm not the best. And um, that that was a good motivator, but but it's diminishing returns if that's the only fear I have, and I let that fear sort of drive the way I cover the game Mm -hmm. and the and who I am when I'm sitting in that that seat in the Premier League studio, Um, because. Wanting to be liked, I think, can be a really dangerous, a really dangerous uh, motivator because sometimes you have to say things that that are going to make people not like you, and um, and there are plenty of Arsenal fans that know exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, you know, there'll be a day where I could sit if I'm thinking about being liked. I shouldn't say what I'm about to say about Manchester United or what I'm about to say about Arsenal. And and that can't be the end goal. The end goal needs to be people that don't like my opinion, respect it. You know, people that don't agree with me, respect what you're saying. So, um, getting back to the good and the bad of being an American, the good about being an American is I'm speaking to an audience, whether it be expat or, or, you know, American that, um... You know, want to want to hear who I am when I cover the game, not who they expect me to be. So, Americans might want me to say all all the Americanisms and and just just be the guy in there waving the American flag, um, and then the expat will want me saying everything that they think is authentic to the game. So it is about about a balance, but but at the end of the day. Um, that's what makes our studio so good is we actually, off air, and, and when we're not on, we have these discussions about, you know, the, the, Rebecca and the Robbies will ask me, you know, what do you think an American fan thinks of this? Or or your league, what, how would this be treated? Mm-hmm. Or they're, they're doing exact same thing I'm doing, which is trying to be conscious of the fact that we have a very uh, diverse audience. Mm-hmm. And that balance, I think, is difficult to get right. But but something that we're trying to get right um, organically instead of instead of it being contrived and being sort mm-hmm. of forced. And, you know, listen, there's a lot of kids that, that grew up watching Major League Soccer that know our national team, that watch NFL, that watch Major League Baseball, that watch NBA, and are used to receiving um, analysis and watching bro- sports broadcasts in a certain way. And they like that familiarity when they're watching soccer. So, um, I, you know, it's kind of like the Fox project with Gus Johnson. Mm-hmm. I knew what they were trying to do, and I, I commend what they were trying to do. It didn't work because it was too far into that forced area of, you know, the basketball guy is going to love this. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I just think that's like all of us. We're all trying this delicate dance of, of delivering soccer in a sports way that's familiar for an American audience but in a way that's authentic to an also hardcore either expat or or American soccer audience that m- might predominantly watch European soccer?
0: I was going to ask you this question later, but the topic just came up, so I'll ask you now. You're one of the few people, I, I think maybe J.P. Delacamera is one of the few other ones, who has worked for NBC, ESPN, and Fox Sports in soccer, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. It's an evidence that... Soccer is are you a calling lot more- me disloyal? <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a presidential press conference. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it shows how much soccer is on American television now yeah. th- compared to even 10 years ago. I mean, what have you noticed, I guess? Could you compare and contrast a little bit from your experience, maybe, how those approaches from the different places are to presenting and broadcasting the sport here?
1: yeah i think they they all have a different ethos i mean when it comes down to not how they cover soccer but how they cover sports mm-hmm. I, I think each place um has 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 it ingrained in in their in their sort of systematic approach to preparing talent and and producing content and so it's kind of like a like a a really good guitar solo. I mean, you know which one's Jimi Hendrix and you know which one's Jimmy Page. Right. It, their, their guitar sounds different. And when you watch Fox, you watch ESPN, you watch NBC, if you took the bug off and, and, and you know, you, you sort of put everyone in disguises, they, they still, I think, would, would know who it is based on the tone. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, for instance, if I'm comparing Fox to NBC, I would say Fox is is a little more casual and a little more sort of fun going than NBC. That might be a little more buttoned up and a little more professional in terms of um, it, it being it it wanting to 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 be delivered in a more polished way. Okay. And, and none of those are are are. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. We're professional, and Fox isn't. None of those are, are criticisms of the other. It's just clear what people are trying to do. And um, you know, I give out of all the places I've worked, um, I would say what I'm what I'm so impressed about is all of them have have come a very long way from when I first took my first job at ESPN. I mean. The the, I feel like soccer at ESPN was a little bit of a, you know, bring your kid to work day. You know, it didn't really seem like it was getting treated like an adult, and Mm. it was it was given the respect and the time that the that the audience was after. And um, you know, Skipper and some of the guys see a much bigger picture than than we do in our sort of soccer lane, but. I've seen ESPN, whether it be with ESPN FC and all the different yeah. attempts to to show how much they care about the game, World Cup coverage, uh, and 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 other things that that have really put it um, in the in in the public space. Showed them how much they care about the game. Fox, you know, when I was at Fox, I have to be honest, we were criticized constantly, and we should have been. It, it was it it was a a a garage band uh sports broadcast. I mean it, it really was and and uh, I personally for me more than most because I had my soccer talk live show that that uh I hope has been has been destroyed and there's no footage left because it was one of the worst shows on television. And um you can laugh. It was so bad. It was so bad. I mean it made Wayne's World look like the Tonight Show. And um you know fox for the longest time thought that they could throw their soccer into a closet and and put one producer on it and point one camera at it and the audience wouldn't care and it was clear that the audience saw that they were doing that and and voiced their complaints and voiced their 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 discontent and fox responded i mean the the, the content now the studio the coverage the talent the 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 scale of it, it it it's commensurate with other other sports that they're covering. I mean, it's in the NFL studio, and and that I was there when that transition was happening, and it was clear that that came from the top that the that they weren't treating the game fairly, and they weren't doing it the right way, and the criticism they were receiving was fair, and it was based off of the fact that they weren't doing it the right way. So, um, you know, my my time at NBC has come. After a huge paradigm shift in the in the in the soccer broadcast landscape, so it's kind of not fair to compare NBC to Fox and ESPN because they were in the game for so much longer before nBC and who knows what NBC would have been like if they were covering the game you know ten years ago uh the premier league or or major league soccer um so what's good is i i I know based on friends that I have, you included working at Fox and working at ESPN, that everyone's raised the bar. So these sort of horror stories and these things that we can laugh about right. now from my time working at Fox or working at ESPN is not the case anymore. Um, will fans have gripes with the way NBC, Fox, and ESPN cover the game? Forever they will. Sports fans, man. Yeah, but, but I think they all should recognize the, the money, the time, and the effort put into delivering this game that we
0: all love. So let's talk about your effort that goes into your broadcasts with NBC. Take us behind the scenes a little bit into your preparation for a Premier League weekend, both individually, but also with the people you're working with. Mm -hmm. So,
1: um, you know, it's hard to convince my wife that uh, during the week I'm in the office and we're sitting in my (laughs) office right now. And and, uh, for instance, I'll turn the computer to you. One of, the things, one of the things I got is I've got all my games, as you can see, all these windows opened up. And <laughs> during the week, there's about 20 of these, you know, first half, second half of all the games from the weekend. And I one by one try to get through them and, and block out. And, and when I get rid of a window, I've done that work. And as you can see, I got uh, five left. So I, so I still have some work to do. That, uh, reading articles, and just really, you know, this is my bunker. I try to get in here and, and fill myself with as much. Um, game knowledge, because that's always important to me, having, having a real sense of, and game knowledge starts first. I'll, I'll Mm. go and watch, watch back games to see themes, tactically individual performances. And then I go to the commentary. What's the social commentary right now? What's the thread? What, what, what? Who, what are people thinking and what questions are they asking on social media? What are the answers from journalists at The Guardian, at ESPN, at Fox, at NBC, um, you know, at, at New York Times? And, and so then I'll go and, and find out what the opinions are. And what what I like to do then is compare and contrast what I've ascertained from games that I've watched um, with what the opinion is out there. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes you know i i'll take a line straight from from a great article that i love to either agree with it or or use it as this is what i feel like people are thinking right now and i don't and this is why so this is kind of the the arming yourself for the weekend so that once you get in the studio and rebecca hits you with that tough question and you got 30 seconds to answer it um you know you you, you are more than ready to go whatever angle she takes it and um you know, I think that's what's so great about um, about the studio, and and I won't sort of go off on a tangent yet because I'm sure we'll get to that. But Rebecca's so good at um, at helping bring out what she knows that mm-hmm. that we just were desperate to talk about or challenge us on things that that we haven't really we haven't really explained well, and we've just hit the surface. And that's the difficulty of having these sort of small sound bites in the studio to try to deliver all of this. So after I sit in the office and and get all this information then we have a um team wide conference call on Thursday. The guys in England, uh Lee Graham and um and Arlo and then uh the Robbies, Rebecca and I jump on with producers and researchers and graphics guys and girls and just figure out okay, what's what's out there? What's important? What are we talking about this weekend? What what does our audience want to hear? What's what What are the few things that we have to hit mm-hmm. and then get into games? okay, here are the three big games we're covering this weekend, and we have an hour an hour and a half long sort mm-hmm. of town hall and open forum to just bounce around ideas and talk about um the weekend. So that's kind of our first formal trimming down of all of the thoughts and all of the the noise about the week in this in this soccer sort of written word or podcast or. Or a highlight show, and then, um, and then go in on a Saturday morning, bright and early, and that's kind of our last point between Rebecca and one of the Robbies and I in the, in the makeup chairs, to say, okay, opening chat, what's what's it going to be? What you know? What we've talked about everything that's going on. Here are the big three big stories. You know, Claudio Ranieri right now, huge story. So. That's going to be our opening chat. How do we move the conversation forward? Because we've already been talking about it. What what's the what's the you know what's the thing that that we find interesting? And so, you know, because of the time difference in what's going on in England, mm-hmm. and and them being a little bit ahead of us in the news cycle, it really is up till that last minute that we're all preparing and getting ready to uh, you know until the until the sort of red light goes on, we're still checking news feeds, checking Twitter, and and trying to think through. Exactly what we want to talk about in that opening chat, and then once the train starts moving, it, it's it's it goes you know it goes wherever. As you know, you you have no control over live TV at that point. So all of the prep for the week and all of the control, that's where um that's where you just you have to get agile and be ready for wherever it moves.
0: So when the 10 a.m. Eastern game starts, you got several games going on at the same mm-hmm. time. Do you oh, try man, and for me. do you try and watch one game above the others, or do you actually try and split between so, all five?
1: I have major attention issues and and <laughs> and a phobia of, of too much stimulus. So we have it in that incredible, and you see it behind us that that Barco wall that we normally put graphics up or put you know headshots up and um, and have stadium behind us, and you know you always see it behind us when we're in the studio. When we go off and we throw to the to the ten o'clock window, they throw up all those games on that Barco wall, and um, you know, you, the, Rebecca and and both of the Robbies will sit there and watch. And we've got this amazing thing in the studio where you got to call out what you see. Top left, you know, goal <laughs> at, at, at Turf Moor, Burnley are up one nil. At, but if you have a if you have an incorrect call or you don't give directional. Uh, information than you could find. So you can't just throw out <laughs> kangaroo yeah, you can't just You can't just throw out a goal! There's a goal! Or you can't throw out goal and then it got called back for offside. You're, you're in big trouble if that happens. Rebecca's been fined several times for that. She gets very excited. Um, but I can't do that. I can't sit there and watch all those games. It freaks me out. So what I do is I tuck myself off to the side. We call it the living room. It's our match of the day set. And uh, I have a monitor in front of me. And I watch, I pick one game that I want to watch and um, and typically it's 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 going to be one of the ones that we're covering that's on NBC, SN or USA or NBC, and then kind of out of the corner of my eye every now and then we'll glance up at the other game's sweat, and my heart will beat really fast and then look back to the one game I'm watching.
0: <laughs> I guess I would assume that when you're leading into coverage on a day, it's a little bit more about storylines because there's so many storylines in yeah. this league in particular. And then once the games start, your discussion is more about what's happening on the field? Or how much do you sort of divide between those two things as you're preparing for a day?
1: Yeah, it just kind of depends on on what develops. If a major storyline is developing, sometimes we will uh, detour from a storyline we had been servicing most of the day. And not make that the priority anymore. Mm-hmm. But but if we start, you know, in an opening chat, going back to that sort of makeup room conversation, mm-hmm. if we say Claudio Ranieri is the most interesting thing to the fans today, and the pressure that he's facing, and um, you know Liverpool's coming up a big game against Liverpool, you know w- w- what sort of pressure happens? How do we see his team react? We open up all of these, all of these questions, and 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 they remain open ended. We have to get back to that, you know. We have to we have to tie a bow on that. Whether it's just sort of Rebecca staying a line. you know, Claudio Murray got a response from his team, but you know, at Manchester United, and uh, you know, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, you know, scores four goals. How is this guy doing that? And 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 you know, there becomes a major storyline somewhere else. We have to be able to move this big ship in in those directions, which is incredibly difficult to to coordinate especially with over in england and and trying to get those guys wrapped in graphics uh highlights um what goes into the barco wall what what arlo throws to rebecca i mean it's incredible to sometimes i'll go into the control room and pierre Musa and adam littlefield and 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 some of these guys who are helping run this thing and are just remarkable are, are fearless leaders they're the ones that that and the, the the great thing is they'll consult us and, and ask us our opinion. What do you think? Do you think this is more interesting than that? Should we go to a story or should we stay with, with with this this B line? Um, and we'll just on the fly make these decisions to to switch tact and go a completely different direction. And and these the poor edit team. You know this could happen. For instance, um, there was something that happened at Selhurst Park where a fan went on the field and confronted one of the one of the Crystal Palace players. I think it was Ledley, and. This, that was a storyline we we had touched but weren't really following. The pressure under Sam Allardyce, Crystal Palace, the bad run they're on, and so all of a sudden this happens as we're going to break. You know, all of the videos being fed down the line from England to our edit team. Those guys have to turn that thing around while they're doing edits for all of those other highlights and all those other games, and because of Twitter and social media which we love because it's it's created this amazing energy behind covering the game but it's going to be on there so we have to have it too we right. we have to service the fans if they see on their feed fan attacks crystal palace fan you know we, we're missing the trick we're really letting our fans down if we can't turn this thing around real quick and get it to them when we get back from the break it breaks you know minute two minutes long right. so it really you know, sometimes fans are upset and I guess this is my backing up our, our our edit team and the people that you don't see and the producers behind the scenes. When you see something like that turned around quickly, it is remarkable that that's able to happen. Right. So the times that they do miss, please forgive them because to your point, you know, we, we love following storylines that we anticipated to be the big storylines, but live TV doesn't always it doesn't always co- co- uh, cooperate that way. So sometimes you got to just you got to
0: just sit back and follow the way way it leads you. So how many of these games on your screen here do you? would you say you watch in a week from like the previous weekend? I would say um, towards the beginning of the year when it's
1: fresh and it's new, I, I try to get through all the games. Oh, wow. So I'll, I'll watch every game from the weekend, which can be incredibly uh, tedious and take a long time. As the season goes on, and, and I feel like I've got a really good grasp of each team's. What I'll do is I'll watch parts of games that that tactically are the most interesting to me. first 15, 20 minutes of a half, last 10 mm-hmm. minutes of a half and first first 15, 20 minutes, of the second half, last 10, 15 minutes of, of of you know the second half and and that's that's more because as the season goes on too, there's 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 storylines that that are much bigger and have gone on for much longer. So then the written word becomes, I think, the balance of of paying attention to that and being up on how how the off field story is evolving with mm-hmm. these teams. Um, you know, sometimes the focus kind of will start to trend a little more in that direction. Mm-hmm. Where I still need to know how things are changing, how the team's progressing, what's going on, but the reason I'm losing a little time trying to cover that is because now there's 20 articles out about Claudio Ranieri and I right. want to hear everyone's take. I, yeah. I, I want, I want every possible angle pro pro keeping him the person that thinks he should have been sacked yesterday. The person who understands if he's sacked tomorrow, but thinks he should be, I, I, I want the whole spectrum mm-hmm. because um, you know, there's a lot of great journalists out there that are covering the game in an interesting way. And you know, as a player, you you have your idea of the game based on on your vantage point, but but journalists bring and fans even. I like to I like to hear what 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 fans think and and their their commentary on Twitter bring a completely different uh, vantage point perspective that based on your your experience as a player, you might think is wrong, but. You have to appreciate that that is real that's a reality an opinions not wrong if this is what a journalist or a fan thinks that's what they think from their angle and by the way you can't see the game from their angle because of your biased being being an ex-player so yeah so so towards the end of the year kind Mm -hmm. of the you know the 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 commentary going on outside of the game takes a little more focus than me sitting down and watching all the games
0: interesting um. Open-ended question, what's the most fun part of your job and what is the hardest part of your job?
1: The hardest part of my job, and um, this won't surprise anyone listening to this podcast because of my 10-minute answers, is trying to, <laughs> is trying to on the fly, on live TV, edit a 10-minute thought based on the games you watch, the research you did during the week. Into a thirty-second soundbite, That's 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 kind of like what you have to chuckle about. Now that you do, you, you've done TV for a while, right. you, you know what I'm talking about. That a fan is furious with you or offers all of these rebuttals <laughs> to 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 a thirty-second thought that right. you had about why Arsene Wenger shouldn't be the coach anymore or why Claudio Ranieri should stay in his position or why Zlatan Ibrahimović isn't going to continue scoring goals or isn't the answer. These remarkable, very, very strong and, and, and very, very difficult to explain opinions. You have 30 seconds to, to condense that, to make it concise, make it cogent and, and make it enjoyable to hear. Um, So, that's what i struggle with is editing on the fly on live tv out all the different angles you can go and also trying to not offer up all of the answers to the rebuttals that you know are coming once you say that thing because you don't have time you don't have time for all of those <laughs> so that kind of goes back to what we said at the beginning of this once you and i still am, am trying to improve on this and every day you know this is this is something that um, I'm sure throughout life, uh, as a player I did and as a pundit I'm going to have to, to to work on, you have to stop putting so much emphasis on hoping people like what you have to say right. because it, I think it makes you a bad pundit. It makes you a bad soccer player. It makes you a bad boss. It makes you a bad husband. You, you need to be confident that you're doing things the right way, you're gonna make mistakes, and know that you've put the work in that that it's it's genuine and it's and it's interesting what you're what you're doing but people are going to hate it people are going to disagree and that's right. great but if you're there to make everyone like your opinion you're going to have more often than not an a, an opinion that's not interesting because a, an opinion that everyone likes is not an interesting opinion right and so you got to find this balance between wanting to be the person that everyone hates because that works in the media, and we and we know plenty of examples not across many different uh, industries, and being the person that everyone likes. I think those two things are are sort of the, on the spectrum, the polars that I'm I'm every day trying to work to find the natural middle. Okay. Most fun part of your job? The most fun part of my job is. Um, is in the studio with with the with Rebecca and the robbies definitely on air because that's that's the kind of in game moment of my job I mean that's the pressure that's you know the lights are on that's the game you know gotta perform but then there's the banter when we're off air watching games and that's like you know back of the coach on your way back from practice you know, someone's getting made fun of, everyone's right. having a blast. You know, that That reminds me that I'm remarkably lucky to be doing what I'm doing with the people I'm doing it with.
0: You know, I was thinking about this. We've gotten so used to seeing you on TV that I think some people forget how good a player you were. Uh, Gatorade- <laughs> or Na- that I was even a player at all. <laughs> <laughs> Gatorade National High School Player of the Year, MLS Rookie of the Year, U.S. National Team. Uh, you retired at 27- due to injuries Uh, when you look back on your playing career what do you see um
1: it's taken some therapy to see this but i see i see a remarkable accomplishment um and and an incredibly fortunate kid that's what i see It's taken me a really long time to see that. What I saw for the last, basically since that day I was in the doctor's office and recorded with him that I would never be able to play again for insurance purposes to have it on record that my career was over. Um, After the waterworks and tears of that day, I felt failure. I felt that my career was a huge disappointment that I never accomplished what I set out to do and that um that I broke up with and fell out of love with the love of my life and it was such a tough and I mean it's hard to talk about it now I mean it's it might sound ridiculous to people but all I ever wanted to do since I was a tiny little kid in a backyard with an oversized jersey on that I had to, you know, tie a knot in because it went over my knees, um, was to be a professional soccer player, and I, I got that. It happened, and to have your dream happen and then be taken away well before you're ready for it to be taken away, is um, is disjointing it's discouraging it's um heartbreaking and so i sh- i i in 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 the short time after my career ended i got lost in visceral experience i just disappeared into new york city with good friends of mine uh drank too much just went out all the time just tried to do whatever i could to chase away what I knew I was going to have to face one day, which was mourning the loss of the thing that I wanted more than anything in life. Um, and 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 this isn't for people to feel sorry for me, but guys that are 35 that have amazing careers, um, you know, I, I'm and I can say it because I know he's talked about it publicly and he he wouldn't mind me saying it. Landon Donovan, as someone who who's had one of the best, if not the best soccer career you can have as an American still, you know, we'll see playing to this day. Struggles with this so so it comes at any time for for any player and it's just not talked enough about enough that I was depressed. I struggled with depression because I wasn't capable of, of handling that that blow and um, you know in my backyard my dad would always come out and play with me and 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 always ask me what's your dream and every time didn't take a beat to play in a World Cup so yeah the dream was to be a professional soccer player, but the ultimate dream was to play in a world cup and i and i I didn't do that and and I came short and you know to to knock on the door twice to be in those January camps to be in world cup qualifiers and to have these bad injuries happen both of those times, it was easy to chalk that up as being unfortunate, and that's just bad luck but then, in you know the years you're trying to hash through what happened what went wrong as a twenty eight twenty nine year old you know over a glass of whiskey you're 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 thinking i screwed up it's my fault that i didn't make it there and you can look at all the times that you you could have done something differently and you start to you start to really go down this dark rabbit hole of how you could have prolonged things how i could have played longer how i could have made the national team uh how i could have played in that world cup you know the confederations cup i got a terrible tackle from behind against cameroon that that destroyed my ankle the gold cup was coming next so you know how many times I've played that play over in my head. What if I didn't cut in front of that guy? What if I just laid the ball off to Chris Harmus and I didn't try that? So, therapy, which which is important and something I, I still do to this day, just just it it taught me to give myself a break and say what I said first to you. Mm-hmm. How fortunate to even have a day as a professional soccer player to even have one of those afternoons the sun on your face in LA playing professional soccer with a bunch of guys that you love so i can grab that moment now that that's the one that 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 comes to me more than the bad moments more than the the tackle against cameroon more than the injury uh in the in the january camp so you know at this point um what i'm doing now is the identity i thought i'd never have again i never thought i'd have an identity, an identity that that was linked to soccer because that identity to me was dead. So what happened was when I gave myself a break and I forgave myself for any shortcomings that I that I linked to my career or, or, or any failures that I associate with my career. I've forgiven myself for those and and sort of gone back to to twenty seven year old me and patted myself on the back and said congratulations that was great. Um, and that that helped me to fall back in love with soccer again. And then now I'm in love with this game in a in a totally different way, in a way that I was back when i when I was a kid. I know it sounds cliched, but I lost that love somewhere along the way and some some people never get it back, and not just in soccer in many aspects in life, so some people can't get back on track and um you know to do what I'm doing now to be a part of the game to to do it with people I love. It reminds me of that, that image of sun of my face in L.A. practicing with the guys. I mean, it, it, it does feel like that in the studio with huh. Rebecca and the Robbies and in a totally different way, in a way that can never really be um, linked to what it was like to be a player, but with, with the same level of, of enjoyment that I got out of playing.
0: If I recall correctly, you didn't go straight from playing into media, didn't you? Take some time in New York. Yeah. Were you in finance or something?
1: <laughs> yeah, that 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 shows you what a dark place I was in. That I <laughs> thought, you know what, soccer player that didn't graduate from college, uh, never held a job in your life. What's 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 next for you? Oh yeah, go go move to Manhattan, rent a studio in. Uh, in the West Village for much more than you can afford, burn through your insurance mo- money from your injury and work in, work in finance on a commission-only basis. Oh, by the way, choose 2008 to do it. By the, I may have caused the financial crisis. <laughs> it was... There couldn't have been a better place for me to, to be because it was such a fish-out-of-water moment um, and, and it was amazing. One of the, one of the people that hired me at the financial firm I was working at, um, ran track for Yale. And of course the sports, you know, the sports connection was why I got in there and, Mm -hmm. and ex-professional athlete. They loved the idea They brought me in. And, um, after I'd gone through asking all of my, you know, buddies who were working in finance for money and it exhausted those channels that, you know, I was sort of just at a loss, didn't know what I was doing. And as I said before, struggling with depression and, and who am I? What am I doing? I'm in a suit in a cubicle with no windows. How did how did I get here? Um, and the the guy, this partner who, who ran the company, knew that I, I shouldn't be there. And um, ESPN had reached out and just by chance, they were covering LA Galaxy in a game. I can't remember who it was against. But they'd lost the color guy and and were scrambling to find someone to fill in. Mm. And through channels of people I'm I'm still friends with in, in the television world and interviews I had done for ESPN way back in the day, they had my number and they texted me and just wondered if you know that next night if I could go cover the LA Galaxy. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'll do it. So I went and did it. And um in a weird way, it reminds me of when I met Eva for the first time, my wife, at a bar a, and just locked eyes and saw her from across the bar and just it was a I'm home sort of moment. Like, huh. this is it. Like, oh, like this is it. This makes sense. Okay, I'm going to go over there, ask her if she wants a drink. She said no, by the way. She wouldn't <laughs> let me buy her a drink. So that one didn't go as well as my <laughs> soccer uh, television career. But um, But yeah, the first game, I loved it. It was great. Um, I was like... This is amazing, and I'm sure I was terrible at it. But I just knew it was something that I wanted to do. That that being close to the field, I was worried was going to hurt a little bit, and that I was going to just start getting emotional, and it was going to start making me feel bad, and I was going to you know have a panic attack. And it didn't happen. And I uh, and I I just thought this is safe. This is a safe distance to be from you know your ex. This is this is okay. This is an okay distance to kind of test the waters. And uh, I went back to to work on Monday uh, in the finance world, and you know, the, the Lehman Brothers I think had just collapsed, and that whole world is falling apart. I mean, it, it couldn't have been written as sort of a you know a, a, a amazing sort of Shakespearean drama. This one world's collapsing. This world that I just don't identify with and just makes no sense is literally collapsing in front of my eyes we're sitting in the lounge of our office on fifth avenue and everyone all the producers all all the all the partners are watching the television as this thing's minute by minute falling apart and and i just was the only person that turned and walked away from the tv to go back to my desk and and watch back the the you know the game from the weekend on my computer um (laughs) You know, so the only one looking the other way and the guy, this goes back to the partner who was the, the guy who ran track at Yale fired me. He 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 fired me because he knew that I needed to be fired. I I was going to stay. I was going to linger. I was going to be in finance. I wasn't going to take the leap. And he knew that I needed to take the leap. And he just said, you, you don't, you just don't fit here. And, um, you know, at first your pride kinda of swells up and you're like, Well, you know, what do you mean? And and I went I went into his office and we kinda of had it out. And it finished with me giving him a hug and and uh and, uh, and he was absolutely right. I, I I went and started working for ESPN at that point, part time, doing games whenever I could, jumping into the studio whenever I could. Um and it just snowballed from there.
0: Wow. We talked already about some of the stuff you did at ESPN, at Fox, at NBC. You did not move to NBC originally to do the Premier League. No, my move my move from NBC was actually kind of
1: like a career suicide sort of move in the sense that Fox had Champions League and and Premier League, and you know now they have all their World Cups and 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 as I said, they had in my time there that that's just when they made a shift. I mean, it was a big. Paradigm shift they were making. They, it was clear what their plan was, what their direction was. Would there would it be a rocky road for sure? But they were on the up, and um, you know I asked for some assurances on where I fit in on this plan moving forward, and what was happening behind the scenes was also a shakeup in in the hierarchy and 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 who was making the calls, what was going on. A necessary shakeup to try to put in place an infrastructure that could handle the ambitious plan that they were putting forward. Mm-hmm. But of course, and understandably so, I couldn't get an, a, a clear idea of where I fit into this plan moving forward. So, I loved calling games. I loved being in the stadium. I loved covering MLS. I loved being around things. NBC got Major League Soccer, and um, you know, said that they were interested in me covering it. And I made a a really bold and and at the time, you know, backwards move in my career to move to a network that had just kind of started getting into the soccer game that we're going to obviously have growing pains that were covering only major league soccer so it was sort of putting all my eggs in one basket but I said it's a league I love it's a league I know it's covering games which is something I love to do it was with Arlo White who I thought was excellent and I knew I had known him from times we'd crossed paths mm-hmm. in sort of at the Seattle stadium knocking on the glass when he was over there covering, covering the game by himself and um, I just said let's do it I, I, I'm going to make the move. And it was, at the time, I think probably a surprise to Fox, but but I, I'm so, and still have a great relationship with them because it was respectful the way we, we we discussed it with each other and just said, understandably, you guys can't give me assurances I need. Um, and, um, you know, we're going to sort of shake hands and say thanks for the time so far. And who knows what happened down the road, but right now the right move for me is to go to NBC. And then covering MLS, loving it, and and you know getting back into being in stadium because at that time at fox i was doing more studio stuff and all of a sudden one day you know we get we're in the car i think arlo whiteshaw brown and i on our way to i think it was philadelphia union game and the news comes through that we got premier league and uh you know kind of you know the re- the rest the rest is history i mean we've uh, unfortunately lost mls something i love doing but um have just been riding this this Premier League wave ever since.
0: I do have one question about the MLS broadcast because I still find it fascinating that you Between guys the were benches. able to pull this off because you were calling games with Arlo White for NBC's MLS games. Yeah. But you were not in the same place in the stadium calling the games you were on this little i don't know what catwalk thing or like no i was on on the
1: field in between like there's like a
0: something you were standing on you had a a podium podium. that you like overlooked but you were on the field and he was up in the typical press box area uh overlooking the entire field and yet you were the analyst yeah working with him. How on earth were you able to pull that off? Because it didn't sound to me at least like you weren't in the same place. I
1: don't know how we pulled that (laughs) off, but I'll try to explain it. The, I, the genesis of the idea was one of our, um, incredible leaders, um, at NBC, Sam flood, who's been there for a long time, had done this with hockey successfully. And, um, and, and, Put the analyst between the bench, and um, you know it really it revolutionized and changed the way that hockey was covered. The fans loved it. It, it, it brought something very fresh and not a gimmicky way mm. to covering the sport of hockey. Something NBC knew very well. Something Sam Flood knew very well. And, and Sam Flood uh, is is one of the 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 big guys at NBC who. Um, you know, who's very responsible for protecting and nurturing that ethos i talked about before and really delivering sports storytelling in a way that's so authentic and unique to, to nbc so he brought the idea to to soccer um and at first of course we're we're like this is crazy and we, and we told sam that we're like sam this is not gonna work i mean hockey and soccer completely different um and Sam, and this is one of the reasons, you know, he's he's gotten to the point he has and how successful he is in his career, just had a vision vision and stuck with it. And Arlo and I tried it in preseason in Florida first, and it kind of like clicked. And we thought, okay, you know, that that went better than than we expected. We expect to be fumbly and stepping on each other and and I think Arlo you know, Arlo was the perfect guy to try this experiment with because he had, when he was working for the Seattle Sounders, covered games by himself. He was play-by-play and color. He was a one-man booth. Um, but it was it was a remarkably challenging thing for me, and Arlo kind of is the reason that it, that it was possible. He made it possible because he helped me through the difficulties of the reason Pierre, the guy who was covering it for hockey, was able to sort of seamlessly move down there is. That rink isn't very big, and from his vantage point, you still can get a really good tactical sense of what's going on on the ice. Being down on field level, there's a reason seats aren't down there. you know. And there's a reason, you know, remember Bruce Arena and, and Bob Bradley and, and Dave Serkin and all these guys sitting on the top of the bench? Right. Remember that whole move? Yeah. Just to get even a foot higher helps your, right. your, your idea tactically of what's going on in the game. You turn the game into two dimensions. When you're standing right. there on the sideline, you see a flat game. You don't see space you don't see pockets you don't see movement you, you really are kind of you're in the dark a little bit and 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 really just counting on a little too much at times your your knowledge of and past experience of how a, how a play panned out and what probably happened in that play i mean you are really playing a guessing game and and really relying on intuition more than observation what we gained which was remarkable was the the sound bites i got from down there through coaches and players and and just little things like mm-hmm. that did enhance the broadcast and i think did pull off what sam was trying to pull off um I, inevitably i don't think it would have been sustainable because a you can accomplish that with a sideline reporter and and you know, Julie, who was who was at Fox, uh, was you know doing doing an, a, an amazing job at that. And there's many that are doing such a good job at delivering very cogent, very yeah. quick sound bites to, to help you understand what's going on down by the field. But um, but also th- it handicaps, I think, the color guy a little too much to, to be down on the field. So it was this really great kind of remarkable experience to be a part of and, and an experiment that I'm glad that we did. Um, but. Part of me is kind of glad that I <laughs> I don't have to do it anymore. It was hard.
0: It yeah. I just thinking about it. It seems hard. Um, do you miss calling games?
1: Big time. Yeah, yeah, big time. I I love calling games. It's a totally totally different feeling skill set um, to to being in the in the studio and um, you know just being there. As simple as being around the atmosphere, the smells, the sounds. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to it's it's hard to in the studio recreate the the, the, the emotion that, that you get simply through being in that atmosphere what it what it, what it sort of does for you osmosis I mean how it sort of leaks into you and comes out in a broadcast. It's hard to do that in a studio. you feel very disconnected. Um, but just watching a game. I, I love watching a game while I'm there, sights and sounds, I'll look at things that the camera's not covering and pick up certain things and, and, and you can't do that as much in the studio. Um, but I do get my chance once a year when mm-hmm. we go over to England and um, that's a really cool experience to grow up watching Premier League and you know, when I was when I was younger, you know, seeing Anfield and, and you know, following, you know, Robbie Fowler and Rush and some of these guys when I was really young and, and then to be at these historical grounds, standing on the gantry calling a game um, is just kind of a really weird, amazing sort of dream coming to fruition and connecting that, that, that linear story of being a kid, loving it so much and then being over there doing it, but then also getting a chance to go back to what I love to do, which is call games.
0: I would be remiss if I didn't mention my faith, one of my favorite moments from your game calling history, which was back in your MLS days when I think it was the playoffs. And I think he said potentially something critical about Bill Hamid, oh, the, the goalkeeper for DC United. So I think he got good. a red card. Yeah. Uh, Tack, I remember Tackle outside of the box. And and Bill, who I think is a, a wonderful guy, by yes, the way. Yes, he definitely is. Uh, tweets something out at Kyle Martini. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember it got a life of its own. It got a hashtag. Uh. And I finally decide what the ingredients in a Kyle Martini should be. What should it be? Those are gin, vermouth, a little bit of hair product, (laughs) with a garnish of a large knotted necktie. (laughs) Oh my God. That was an
1: amazing, that was an amazing pop culture moment. I mean, it created. And thank you, Bill, so much for creating that moment. I remember that night I was out with the guys, as we do after the game, having a drink, and I ordered a martini, and, and, I, and I took a picture of it. And, um, and I, the first time I saw Bill after that happened, we uh, it was in L.A. Actually, and I went over, and we just we gave we gave each other a, a, a big high five and a hug because I knew heat of the moment. If I had a Twitter handle and a phone, heat of the moment. I don't want to know what sort of nonsense I would have said and who I would have said it to. So that was an amazing moment. Your
0: playing career did end right when Twitter got gone. Which I think is a good thing. I think it's a good thing. A few more questions here. I'm having a lot of fun. I realize this is not a soundbite interview, but that's why I'm enjoying this so much. Um, You are an investor in Mallorca. Yeah. The club in Spain Mm -hmm. with Steve Nash and Stu Holden. Yeah. How did that happen? In a really
1: weird roundabout way. So uh, Stu is obviously a friend of mine from playing days and Steve became a, a friend of mine from my uh, post-professional playing days and um, my my amateur playing days. I, when I moved to New York City in the times right after retiring, still had the, the hunger to play a little bit and could limp around the field and uh, went down to Pier 40 to play in the adult league with um, – with a couple of my buddies and and a couple of ex pros, uh, Richie Williams was down there playing, mm-hmm. and uh, he had invited me one day. And Steve was playing on the team, and we just hit it off right away, just sort of cut from the same same cloth and uh, same same music, love, same sense of humor, uh, same hair at times, and <laughs> um, and just just have stayed friends ever since. And then when I got out to LA. Um, he was playing for the Lakers and he was living out there full time. And we had created this remarkable pickup game just through word of mouth and texting and whoever was in town, right down by the beach. We called it the Venice Premier League. And, you know, Del Piero would come by, <laughs> um, Landon would play, Stu would play, Alexi Lalas, uh, Eddie Lewis, Ante Razoff. Nice. Um, it was, it was a really cool, fun, fun game. And afterwards we'd have a cup of coffee right there on the strand and, and, um, just shoot, shoot the shit and just talk about anything that day, whatever it was. And one day it was just about what would it be like to own a team? You know, you know, talking about video games and playing sort of, you know, manager, you know, computer game and, and what it's like to be a football manager in a fantasy world and how fun that is. And you know, is that a fantasy? I mean, we could, is there any way we could, we could actually make this a reality? And and you know, just thinking, really small scale of you know, is is there a local team we can get involved with? And not even in really in a in a major league soccer or or USL or NASL or any sort of sense. Just is there a way to get kind of get involved in that? And we left it that day as just a pipe dream, and you know, it'd be fun because we just. We love the game so much. We love each other so much. And it'd be fun to just be involved in a project like that. And many months later, Steve texted Stu and I, and we have an ongoing group chat. And he said, crazy idea, but Robert Sarver, who's the uh, owner of the Phoenix Suns, wants to get involved in soccer, wants to look into owning a soccer team, and um, wants involvement. Mm-hmm. And... um you know, Steve, obviously very, very tied into to that community still and good friends with Robert said, you know, I, I definitely want to get involved, but I want to get involved with soccer people. Um, so he, he said, Stu, Kyle, you, I mean, are you up for this? And the process of kicking the tires of many different teams started and leagues all around the world. And uh, a lot of due diligence and a lot of work to find out what makes sense, where makes sense, and took a couple of shots at teams and bids that were turned down and votes that that the bids that were accepted but boards that voted against huh. it, and finally uh, the day came through and we're all sitting by our phones. We knew that the vote was coming up on whether or not our bid would be accepted for Mallorca. It was accepted. Huh. And uh,
0: we Here we, own, are. we
1: own teams, a very very small <laughs> part of a team, but yeah, team owners, and it's been it's been incredible.
0: Nice, very cool. Um, you've done other stuff too besides soccer and television. Uh, you did a really cool show, Thirty Six Hours, for Travel Channel, yeah. based on the New York Times Thirty Six Hours column. Uh, you did Spartan Race for NBC. Uh, it seems like you've made a conscious effort to do more than soccer during the summer when you have that time is that accurate definitely um part of it's probably a site
1: a a slight um a narcissistic tendency to like (laughs) being on air and like having an opinion um but more so it goes back to what i was struggling with when i finished my playing days i sort of vowed not necessarily vowed but but understood that i couldn't tie my identity so much to being a part of soccer um, I wasn't gonna allow myself to 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 be able to be as devastated as I was when my playing career ended um, by losing it again um, and so I, I knew I needed to in a healthy way not love the game as as exclusively as wholeheartedly and and as um as sort of f- fanatically as I did before and need so much validation back from it. So, um, you know, doing the other things is just a kind of getting back to which is a long time. Who I was before my my whole world was wrapped up in and what it what it meant to be a soccer player and having my identity be so Intrinsically linked to that, so mm-hmm. so doing the other stuff is because I just have so many different interests, and in order to be a more um, sati- satiated and and satisfied and and I think whole person, I need to start satisfying those those um, those other hungers, those yeah. other interests in in many different aspects of life, and just have a much more diversified. Uh, lifestyle portfolio.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Are you planning on doing more of that?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, You know, the the good part about the the being the weekend warrior in the sports world is, you know, when I'm not watching games or or not reading articles, which isn't isn't a lot of time, I, I do have these pockets of being able to, whether it's jump on the Today Show, or whether it's do podcasts, or whether it's do in the summer, um, you know, the Spartan races and, and the 36-hour show, just be able to to scratch those other itches um, is, is just a really great benefit of what my c- current sports uh, requirements afford.
0: This leads into my next question, which is your Twitter bio, which says in it, refusing to stick to sports since 1981. <laughs> now... Obviously, you're not just sticking to sports if you're doing these other shows. Yeah. But I think I get the sense there's more to it than that. It, what? Yeah. What are you saying there?
1: What I'm saying there is that we're all more than our day job. We're all much more than our day job. So, you know, we we don't tell a chef to stick to cooking, or you know, tell a <laughs> tell a teacher to stick to teaching, or tell a, a an accountant stick to accounting. You know so so this idea that you're you're only supposed to you're you're supposed to let your profession encapsulate you and completely define who you are and this kind of goes back to what I was talking about being too wrapped up in the identity of being a soccer player um we are we are so much more than that and and we care about and think about so many different things outside of our Core competency or, or or daily profession, we're are all more than capable to speak on many different things. So, it definitely was born out of getting the stick to sports response from too many people too often, and felt the need to to put that as a as a disclaimer in my in my bio, um, so everyone was forewarned. <laughs> but also, born out of this current political landscape. I think it's necessary for all us all to just speak up when, when, when we notice things as human beings that, that elicit emotional responses that, um, that make you want to say something, whether it's for yourself or for someone else, you know, that's, that's who we are as a country. I mean, not, not, not to get too constitutional, but, but you're, you're, you know, the constitution gives you that right of free speech to say what you're thinking. And, um, you know, I I'm not coming out and talking about legislation. I'm talking about people. And and this isn't really about politics. This this current landscape. And and that's what really inspired me to come out and speak, which is I think we all sit in these echo chambers that we've created for ourselves and just hear our own thoughts bounced back to us and, and really just listen to what we know we're going to accept and what we're going to like and that's why we're kind of in this divisive time right now and and this powder keg and an incredible turmoil that we see every single day that's 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 affecting many many people's lives in real and noticeable ways it's easy to ignore those things and to kind of take a back seat and use the the stick to sports thing for myself as as a protection that i don't need to say things that are difficult to say um, but why I'm compelled to do so is because part of going back to that echo chamber, there are algorithms in our Facebook and Twitter and and these, these vehicles that we use to connect to the world, our, our social window into what's interesting and what's important. They curate the information that we get right. because they want us to live in echo chambers because that makes it a more enjoyable experience on their platforms. So because of this control and curation of... Thoughts and ideas that that come into people. If athletes and artists and other people who who are public figures that that attract a bipartisan fan base, if they don't speak about some of these things, then there is an audience, whether it, it be you know sort of left or right, that will never be exposed to. A thought or an idea that that's important that people should whether you agree with it or not is not the point it's it's that there's discourse that there's conversation and so this whole fake news thing and, and, and this this shutting down of anything that we don't agree with i think should and we're seeing it with corporations, whether it be, you know, what was going on with Uber and their CEO, or, or whether it's, you know, Starbucks and Apple. I mean, obviously, corporations uh, are feeling the need to, to be more political than they've ever been. But I think individuals, athletes you're seeing come out and speak because, uh, again, I don't feel it's politics. This isn't speaking about politics. It's speaking about humanity. It's speaking about issues that should be important to everyone. So if, you know, an athlete doesn't to his you know, millions of, of, of Twitter followers, and, and I, I don't have anywhere near that much, but if, if he doesn't say, this is important, this is interesting, what do we think about this? If, if, if he doesn't start a conversation to a huge following that now can't avoid that and, and it's not blocked to coming to them, then there will n- never be any crossing the lines. There, there will never be important discussion and discourse because um, that, that, that really is where I think we are as a country. And and you know, it's hard for me to speak globally, but definitely as a country, we're just not listening to each other anymore. And um, it's too easy to say stick to sports when someone says something that you don't like, but at least if, if I have the courage to, to go out and say something that's going to get me a lot of criticism and, and is going to invite the stick to sports stuff, it, at least that begins to chip away at these walls that we've all put up. And and I put myself in that same category because I, I follow people on Twitter, whether it be a comedian or whether it be an actor, a musician or a chef that that either agrees with me or doesn't agree with me and will offer me things that I'm not seeing yeah. and not hearing. So it goes both ways. I, I'm looking for that as well. So the not sticking to sports since 1981 just really means I'm more than who I am when you see me on TV. And why wouldn't I be able to have an opinion on all the things that affect everyone during their daily lives?
0: Right. Your wife, Eva, her mother happens to be Susan Sarandon, the actress, <laughs> yeah. who also, besides being known for being a tremendous actress who's made a million great films, um, has been, I don't know if, if activist is the correct term, yeah, definitely but, is. Pro- yeah. but probably is yeah. uh, in terms of uh, describing her over the years. Has she had an influence on you in this area?
1: She not on my views really yeah. as much um, as much as she's had an influence on on my my leap into being able to speak about these things publicly. Which, I mean she she she's definitely helped me get the courage to want to say and. And offer suggestions and ideas and thoughts in a space that's going to get me criticism, that's going to, that there's going to be major blowback. Uh, I mean, she is an incredibly smart, thoughtful, compassionate, and courageous pers- person. I mean, here's someone who spoke out against the Iraq war when it was not anywhere close to popular speaking out against it, and in hindsight was right, but got death threats, got many people trying to tell her to stick to quote unquote stick to sports you know you're an actor you should only be doing that um and if she didn't have the courage to to speak out about some of those things then that doesn't snowball i mean that activism is born out of word of mouth activism isn't one person doing one thing her saying that's not the reason things happen but her saying that is the reason that another person gets courage and that domino effect begins. And that, that's what we're seeing with a lot of activism right now is the Women's March and these other things are people are, we have a populace who 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 are awake that are have been activated, people that have sat on the sidelines. And whether it be going to vote, whether it be going to a town hall, whether it be showing up to a protest, things that people would have never done before, whether it be a soccer player tweeting something that people consider political who would never have done that before. I mean that that's what she's taught me um to to stand up for people if you believe it's right. Um you know and and right now watching what she's going through with um her being critical of Hillary Clinton and and Trump winning and 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 people conflating the two and now her getting blamed by liberals for Donald Trump winning is why we're in a mess. People not willing to look at themselves and look at any shortcomings or any mistakes that were made um, within your group. It's always easier to point a finger and blame on the outside. So the idea that Susan is responsible for Donald Trump being president is, is is so remarkably laughable there was a comedian the other day on Twitter that said if Susan Trump is responsible for for Trump or for Hillary Clinton losing then Scott Baio is responsible for Trump winning <laughs> you know it's like this idea that <laughs> that one celebrity speaking out like against someone could cause an entire country's I- electoral system to to adjust is is you know i say it's quite humorous, but she's she's received so much vitriol and and so many threats from her own side from from Democrats and liberals that she f- that she fights for every day she's one of the people getting arrested i mean in, in the eighties she was one of the people getting arrested fighting for for issues she she's been on on the front lines for the dakota access pipeline and these many things that are huge should be bipartisan issues um and you know she was um she was critical and she has her every right to be critical of of a candidate that she didn't believe in and didn't feel she should be pressured into voting for that person because of the, the dangers of the other one being in office. And one thing she said that got all of this falsely quoted, but all of this attention was she said, you know, Trump will be, bring the revolution quicker than, than Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. did. Everyone looked at that, and that was that was sort of twisted to say um i'm supporting trump when of course if you ever heard her and I hear her at dinner every night, she is the farthest from supporting Trump, but look at our country right now the women 's march the resistance the 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 activism the the conversation that's going on is so important to our the health of our democracy. And listen, I, I've got a Republican family. I've got I in my own family are having these cross the, the lines conversations. Okay. And um Susan is the type of person that promotes those conversations instead of shuts them down. And I think that's someone who should be celebrated even if you disagree wholeheartedly with what her opinion is.
0: One thing we haven't talked about yet, and this is sort of a jarring transition, is um <laughs> What happens when you say your opinion on television and maybe the people that you have relationships with or that you cover don't like it? Yeah, which happens a lot. Uh, which has to happen a lot. I mean, it happens, I think, if you're a decent journalist, media personality of any type, you're, not everyone's always going to be happy with what you say or write about mm-hmm. them uh, among the people you cover. Um you and I have something in common and that at certain points during Jurgen Klinsmann's time as US Men's National Team coach we were both basically frozen out mm-hmm. by him. Yeah. My quick story and I'll tell you mine if yeah. you tell me yours yeah. is um I had some reports uh insider reports on Fox in I guess it was late 2016 that he didn't like about um reports about the technical director duties at U.S. soccer being sort of taken over in some ways by other people in U.S. soccer. Um, And basically for the last year and a half of Klinsman's tenure, I did not get a one-on-one interview with him. Um, And that's his right Mm -hmm. and and his decision. That's that's, one way to deal with it. Yeah. And I take pride in the fact that I didn't make that public when I was, when he was still the national team coach. I didn't cover him any differently during that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I did think it was time for him to go, I wrote a column after the 4 0 loss to Costa Rica Mm -hmm. in November, and he did go very soon thereafter. And I certainly wasn't the only one writing that column. It's your fault. It's it's your fault. You did it. (laughs) But what's interesting to me. And I want to hear your story, mm-hmm. if you're willing to tell it in yeah, a second here. Yeah. Um, I was interested in the fact that this guy that was a World Cup winner, and I think Jurgen Klinsmann actually is a pretty nice guy. He is. Um, but this guy who was a World Cup winner was that thin-skinned that he would shut down. Mm-hmm. And not just me, not just you. There are other people in the media that this happened with.
1: Maybe we'll inspire, inspire others to tell their stories. Perhaps.
0: Uh, what's your story? So...
1: um. Let me get the, the timeline right. I'm at RFK covering Major League Soccer, and we had a segment at halftime to discuss things in the soccer landscape that were not always domestic but, but important to our, our soccer audience. And the U.S. team had just played a game, and the discussion about Jurgen Klinsmann and his tenure and the direction of the team came up and i had gone th- and watched them train um in california for the week and had gone several times and obviously have and this is one of the the benefits of of being such a young guy in this space is i still have a lot of guys that i played with that are still on the team so i still have great relationships with guys that are playing that that trust me because um like you i would never you know disclose who said it or where it came from? Um, but gather a lot of information from players and make sure that it's never only one player because we know that that's not the whole story. And then made sure I went and saw for myself as well. I had started to hear that training sessions were um, were being run and and execution of ideas were just not coming across to the players and 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 things were a bit muddled and players were were. Not satisfied with the way things were being run by the coaching staff, so I went to go see for myself, and I noticed a couple of things that 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 connected with what I was being told by players, and I went on air and said, Jurgen Klinsmann, and we can go back to what we've learned, Philip Lahm's book, and other things during Jurgen Klinsmann's career, is a very charismatic leader who can inspire, who who is a a personality. That obviously gets a lot of respect because of what a remarkable player he was and a fantastic world class career he had, and then accomplishments uh, as a coach as well. But but there's the story that kept popping up about him not really being the soccer mind that would that would really implement and execute soccer philosophy and ideas and, and strategy and relied a lot on, and it was Yogi Love uh, in Germany relies a lot on his number two. And so his assistant at that point was Martin Vasquez. And I just based on my observations and things I had heard thought he wasn't up to handle the challenge of being the person to implement the vision and the strategy and the, and, and, and run a training session every, every day during the week that would help during the weekend. So I voiced that on air. Um, and of course, that's my opinion. I didn't say I heard from any of the players. I I, I, I made it my opinion because it was. I had to go see for my, uh, my myself before I could really feel confident enough to say that on air. And I think in a journalistic sense for it to be ethical for me to say it on air. Um, my phone rings when I'm at the airport that night. I mean, this is hours later. And it's... Um, Someone from U.S. Soccer who says uh, Jürgen Klinsmann wants to speak with you. He's not very happy with what you said on air today. And I was getting ready to hop on a plane, so I said, I, "You know, I can't speak with him right now, but I'll, I'll talk with him um, tomorrow." This, this, by the way, let me give it a time frame. Is is the call forty eight hours? But when I eventually got on the phone with Jürgen Klinsmann, twenty four hours before their game at the Azteca against Mexico. Oh wow! So. To begin with, the fact that I'm even on his mind, on the radar or of any importance leading into such a massive game was already a little bit strange to me. Um, but I had met Juergen many times and, and, and he had my, and still has my respect. And, and I said, you know what, I, I absolutely will get on the phone with him and hear what he has to say, hear what his gripes are. So we get on the phone and um, you know, he starts out very, very upset at me for my criticism of martini says i'm absolutely wrong um i had referenced what philip blom had said about his time in germany and he had said you know philip was wrong when he said that um and the you need to stop perpetuating this this um this idea that that that's kind of how i run things and i wish you would have called me first and just just really um kind of laid into me at the beginning and um and the message kind of was that that what I was doing would be detrimental to the u s soccer landscape and and make his job more difficult and um you know we went back and forth and i i said i you know I, I respect you saying that but i I respectfully disagree with you this is this is my job i'm paid i'm paid to um hold our our the U S soccer staff and players accountable in my, in my space and to do it fairly. And I think I've earned the credibility that I have done that fairly in my time doing the job. Could I be wrong? I absolutely could be wrong. Phone call ends in what I thought was a pretty amicable way. Right. And, and, and just to sort of agree to disagree, but moving forward, I would appreciate if you called me first was Jurgen's mm-hmm. ultimate position. But then few few days later uh we got word at nbc that there was a press conference coming up for u.s soccer and i was banned from it i wasn't allowed to to show up at the press conference and there was no clear indication um about when i was going to be allowed back to cover u.s soccer and was going to be given access to the coaching staff and
0: this is while nbc is a rights holder for the u.s national team games or at least half of them yeah
1: yeah so um so, th- that came through to NBC, and I give NBC so much credit, who always, in, in, in my view, do, do the right thing. And in this moment, the right thing was to stand behind, if you thought, and they went back and watched my halftime segment, if you thought your talent uh, worked within the, the um, boundaries of, of doing the job ethically then you support them. And NBC said, well if that's the case, then we're not sending any of our of our talent down there wow. and, and no one will be covering uh the press conference. Uh so that that the 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 boycott of Kyle Martino didn't last very long and, and I credit NBC for for having such a strong stance to support me. Um what's so fascinating about this is if I was wrong then I made not a mistake, but I was just wrong. And you know what? I'll be wrong a lot during my career. I, I, I'm, I offer opinions, and on opinions, uh, and, and opinions on a game that we only have so much information about. And it's, it's not speculation, it's just based on all the information that's at your disposal. And I had a lot. This is the conclusion that I've come to. But months later, what happens? Jurgen Klinsman fires. Martin Vasquez before the World Cup. Right. I don't think I'm good enough or have any I, I I can be cocky sometimes, but my opinion of myself is not inflated enough to think it was because of what I said. Um so what's kind of baffling to me is this freeze out happens. Um he ends up in 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 a very bizarre way that was that was strange to players because of how quick it was done without much explanation he gets rid of one of his most loyal uh, staff who have been with him through a few different teams right before the World Cup, one of the most important roles in his group. And I had suggested months later... Um, earlier. or Sorry, months earlier, yeah. that, that he probably wasn't qualified for that position. And to this day, I've not gotten an apology, I've not gotten any sort of communication back to say, you know what, that wasn't handled in the right way and we're sorry. So at the end of the day, I think Jurgen has and I agree with what we said earlier, he's a good guy who who has a lot of remarkable qualities. One of them that maybe has worked for him in the past that didn't work this time around, um, that he tried on you and me, which is trying to control the perception of his team and trying to control what people in the media were saying and to shut things down that he didn't like, and going back to the political conversation we were having before that that's a really dangerous atmosphere and 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 precedent to set because that's that's how checks and balances work, and that's what our soccer audience needs and and by the way, with social media and podcasts. Everyone has, has a voice right now So you can't shut down everyone um, And I was just kind of surprised To see someone as successful as he's been As charismatic And as capable to lead as he is Be so so thin-skinned About one person in the media's opinion Who months later It seems like you actually agreed with
0: Thanks for sharing that story Yeah, yeah. Um, At least you got a phone call from I never got it <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was a weird it was a weird moment, but you know what, I think an important moment because um it was a totally different thing. I think a, a different experience that, that than anything US Soccer had had right. dealt with before and um it was I think a learning experience for for all, all involved and um I, to this day if I my relationship with Jurgen was was patched up and and we were fine after it happened and if I saw him Today we would shake hands and and be incredibly cordial because we do have a lot of respect for each other. But um, yeah, it was. A, it, I think it was one of the most bizarre and uh, one of the more bizarre moments in my soccer uh, broadcast career so far.
0: I do think it's an interesting window, though, into what maybe viewers don't always see. Yeah. You know? um, but uh, I guess just to wrap up, and I appreciate you taking this much time. Um, what? do you want to do down the road in this business do do you want to continue doing soccer long term do you want to potentially move away from it and do some of these other non-soccer things that you've been doing
1: yeah i don't know if i if i really know the answer to that if i'm being honest I, i think right now what i'm doing is filling my life with things that make me happy Things that I could see myself doing down the road and and being okay with it being just one of them if that if that ends up being the case, if I just end up being uh, someone on the Today show down the road doing maybe what Michael Strahan's doing, I, I would I think I'd love that um, but part of me says if it could only be one if if I'm forced to pick. I could do this Premier League job for, or you know that idea of a job—the weekend warrior in the studio with, with people you love, calling the game you love. I could I could do that till I'm till I'm 80 if my hair is still around. Then
0: (laughs) Kyle Martino, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Grant. That was fun. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Kyle Martino, as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Danny Carbassioon, Sunil Gulati, Sean Francis, Moya Dodd, Kate Abdo, and Colin Udo. Do me a favor, and if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On Your Favorite Team on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On Your Favorite Team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.